Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 45 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. For our final episode of season two, we bring you the second installment of our live event, It's Not You, It's the Situation, hosted by our very own Aaron. This week, we pick up from last episode and focus on new methods of science communication to make science more accessible to a broader audience. To enable this discussion, we spoke to a few individuals from several arenas of science communication, including academia, industry, and broadcasting, and they provided their perspectives on the challenges inherent in communicating science and speculated on the benefits of emerging platforms and technologies in allowing the public in on the conversation. Thanks, Richie. So this was the first time that I moderated a panel, and to be completely honest, I was a little nervous beforehand, but I think in the end I had a really enjoyable experience and all the panelists we had were incredibly engaging. So who are these awesome people that I got to speak with on this panel discussion? So my name is Vicky Forster. Vicky is a postdoc at SickKids Hospital and science communicator. You may also recognize her voice because she was recently featured on the podcast. Go check out Dr. Smeet Gupta's episode if you want to hear more. Hi, I'm Kevin Miller. Kevin is a senior VP of creative and medical science at Invivo Communications. He's also an IMS Biomedical Communications alum. Hi, I'm Ella Fetter. Ella is a co-host and producer of the Undiscovered podcast. We were incredibly lucky to have her join us all the way from New York for our event. I'm Helen Karnasopoulos. Helen is the co-founder and co-director of the Department of Computer Science Innovation Lab at the University of Toronto, an incubator and accelerator for early stage startups in Canada. As you listen to the episode, think about some of your favorite means of learning about and communicating science, and let us know about them on social media, at Raw Talk Podcast. We hope you enjoy. We start our discussion by asking a really big question and really just your thoughts about this. And in a utopic sense or in, a, in an ideal world, what would effective science communication or knowledge mobilization look like to all of you? Okay, I, I can try and start. So I thought about this a little bit before we, we started, and I guess my answer is really very brief. I would like everyone to have access to whatever they're interested in, which is something we definitely don't have at the moment. And that goes on many levels to making research papers open access to them being communicated at a level where people can access them. Um, And I guess on a more broad level for everyone to believe that they belong and that they deserve to access science if they want to because I think a lot of people still see science as some kind of oh I can't possibly do that because science is for super smart people and and things like that and I don't I think we need to work hard to kind of shift that belief so for everyone to believe that they can invest in science if they want to and also be empowered to access whatever information they feel they would like to. I think that gone are the days where we looked at um, uh, content in a linear format where we would start by reading a journal or a newspaper and start at the beginning and work our way all the way through to the bottom. Uh, what we're seeing is that there's a real appetite for being able to take, con- to take content and customize it and make it so that it's consumable in ways that people can navigate it in a non-linear fashion. And I think that being able to make it multi-sensory so that you're not just reading something, you're seeing it, you're feeling it, it's got haptic feedback, you're involving other sensor, uh, sensory organs to be able to bring a much more immersive experience to something really helps to tell a story in a way that's compelling, that makes it memorable, that people will then walk away from and remember those details. And I think that um, we're really starting to see that there's a groundswell around some of those types of initiatives and our ability to try and tell those stories in a different way. And that's largely the types of challenges that we get presented on a regular basis from our clients 
who come to us and ask us to try and take a story that was originally conceived in a significantly more linear fashion and turn it into something that will resonate with that audience who's looking at it. So they may want to learn about the efficacy of a drug or understand about what's going on with respect to clinical trials related to that product. And being able to segment that up into a nonlinear format where they can look at it in very different ways really personalizes that. And by taking that kind of an approach, I think you're going to really see that that resonates with the audience who's looking at it. And ultimately, you're going to have better retention. And I think that's the way that the future is moving. Now I feel bad. I, I work on a linear, single sense <laughs> medium, but I agree with you. And I want to do other stuff. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I also, Vicky's point, I really, I think, making it accessible, not having, this be, having science be this rarefied, you know, elitist endeavor. Um, as my dad was saying. Uh, but I also, I think uh, Dan brought this up, thinking of science as, or communicating that science is a process and not just a finding. I think a lot of, you know, people you know, he just see a headline that coffee is bad for you one week and the next week they see that coffee is good for you. And I think because it's because they don't understand the process, journalists included sometimes, that they think, well, science doesn't know anything. They don't understand that it's, you know, incrementally, constantly changing our understanding of the world. Communicating the process as well as the findings is really important. In a utopian world, we would know if coffee was good or not bad for you, right? So we would, this Fitbit um, would then be implanted in me. No problems, I'll do it. Um, we'll have a tattoo that can signal when something's going wrong. Um, so I see that as embedded into our human lives. So I see it as a consumer, right? I see it as... Uh, Yes, I'm always seeing things that can sell, right? That's, uh, that's why I'm on the panel. So you know my viewpoint, you know, I'm always trying to figure out how to sell you guys medical devices um, and get funding for it, you know? So I'm thinking, how do I embed into your lives, right? Who has a Google Home? Who has a Siri? Who has an Alexa? <laughs> I would have to giggle because it's scary. <laughs> you know, did you ever hear that? They was giggling in our houses. They just don't know why Alexa was laughing. Um, <laughs> that that is know. not even the most frightening story at this point. It, the one where they sent people's recording, audio conversations. Oh yeah, recorded. and they yeah. come back to you. So think about this. When utopia is a slippery slope into dystopia, that's where we get the policy guy. Where is he? Put up his hand somewhere. Policy dude over there, please save us. Um, <laughs> where the utopian is when we finally integrate all these inventions you're going to create for us into our lives. You're going to help me live better, longer. You're going to help my kids live longer and better, right? You're going to integrate our lives in a, in a total different way, right? So the utopia for me is how will the education will happen because it'll be in our faces, right? It'll be on the screens, it'll be on our walls, it'll be integrated into a seat when I sit down, it'll be integrated into our beds, right? I've seen that in tons of labs down the hall, right? Just down the street, right? Where we can create better products, you know? So within UHN and all the other great labs in here, that's the future, that's the utopia. Now the question is, how do we get into our lives every day? All right, well, I think those were really great ideas to start um, getting them percolating in our, in our minds so that we can start our discussion about what is the current status quo of how scientific information is shared in Canada and sort of what is the groundwork for science communication right now? What are your thoughts on that? No, I'll, hap I'll happily start because I think I have a slightly unique perspective on this as if I'm right, the only non-Canadian on the, on the thing, as you can tell by my... 
No, I have this really Canadian accent. Um, I'm hoping it'll disappear soon, but uh, never mind. Um, anyway, so um, I'm actually going to play devil's advocate a little bit here, and I have mixed feelings about my home country, but one of the things that we're really good at is science communication. Um, the UK has some of the best science communication institutes. It has some of the world's biggest charities using science communication in a really clever way to a point where we big charities is one called Cancer Research UK, which is the world's second biggest cancer research charity after... Um, the National Cancer Institute, I think, or organization, um, actually pretty much invented some of the methodologies to actually communicate medical research, particularly to patients and also to stakeholders. And I think I could go on about this for the next 26 and a half minutes, but I can't because I'll get told off. Um, but one of the really interesting things that the UK has done uh, is it realized very early on that communic uh, communicating to people is good for business and it's good for brand identity, even if you're a nonprofit. And unfortunately, the world we live in is sometimes you need to have some kind of financial or organizational kind of push to do things. And it can't always be out of the goodness of our heart. Um, but also that can be a side effect. So talking to people with cancer about what research their money that they've just had a 5K run for is actually doing is a great thing for the brand identity and a great thing for those patients. So these two things can be integrated. And just quickly before I move on, because I said I could go on forever, uh, Canada has a wealth of talent, an incredible, incredible amount of talented, uh, inspired people who already communicate their science in many, many different ways. I think what would help here is using, and it's already happening, is using some of the schemes of the places that have already done it very well in order to kind of seed and get this talent together and then go and found new ideas and Canadian ways of doing things and ways of you know, using uniquely Canadian um, kind of treasure troves of things like you know, incredible indigenous knowledge of ecology, for example. You know, that's something that you have here that people don't have anywhere in the world. And so it would be great to see those kind of uh, things being more talked about. But yeah, great talent. It needs a little bit of a push, I would say, as my outside. And I'll, I'll sort of... Uh pick up where you left off on that. Uh, one of the things that's unique about InVivo is that we are located in Toronto, but 85% of our business happens outside of our borders. So we work with a lot of companies in Europe and across North and Central and South America. And what we're seeing is more often that that high level risk taking about going out and using an innovative technology that hasn't been used before is something that tends to be more reserved for our clients that live or are outside of the Canadian borders. Um, some of the um, most cutting-edge uh, technologies that we work with are based on uh, global clients that we have that are willing to invest in something that hasn't been done before. And what we find is that in many instances afterwards, uh, Canada will see that it has been tried and tested and then they're, they're along for the ride and they're willing to do it. Uh, and there's two prongs to that. The first one is I think there's a, a little bit of a sense of, a, of risk aversion to try and see whether or not this is a successful way of telling a story, a, su a successful way of being able to uh, make sure that their message gets across. But one of the bigger challenges that we see is the fact that most of the companies that we work with, their global headquarters are not in Canada. And so the budgetary piece falls into play and Canada doesn't necessarily always have that same level of resource that they can apply to those ideas. Now that being said, we do have a number of Canadian clients and they have fantastic ideas and we're seeing more of a groundswell around what some of those opportunities look like and we try very hard to work creatively with those Canadian clients to try and find a way to tell their story in a way that is innovative, that does make use of innovative technologies 
so that we can work with the resources that they have available and ensure that that is something that ultimately they can stand and wave a flag and say, you know, the rest of the world will follow what we've done here and cascade that through to other uh, global entities that uh, reflect that farmer or med device client. Yeah, so I, I am a science journalist, so I tend to think of, about science communications specifically in terms of science journalism. Uh, and when I started transitioning into journalism from science, I was told that science journalism was dying, um, not just in Canada, but everywhere, that newspapers were shutting down their science sections. You still get science reporting to an extent in a lot of newspapers, but it, it isn't that dedicated section anymore. Uh, it isn't, you don't get the same resources devoted to it. A lot of times they're republishing stuff from the Associated Press or other newswires. Uh, so that, that is sad. Actually, I was just reading that the Ottawa Citizen and the Ottawa Sun share a science reporter, which makes me sad because I think, I think journalists are supposed to be versatile and you, know, you, you have to cover fields that you're not necessarily the world's foremost expert in. But having dedicated science journalists, when you get to know a beat really well, that's when you can do a really good job and question the things that you're being told and, and contextualize them. On the other hand, there are some really great, there's like a ton of cool science publications, both audio, uh, print, digital. But I, I worry that it's being cordoned off a bit from other kinds of journalism so that it is more people who are interested already in science who are being exposed to science journalism. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, hard, it's hard to have a like, definitive blanket statement on this. It's a big, it's a big topic. <laughs> but there are, yeah, things that, things that concern me and things that I'm excited about. Um, I know that in, in New York, so I'm now in, in New York, which is where Science Friday and Undiscovered is, is based. Uh, there are just a ton of really cool science podcasts that are based out of there. Our guests have touched upon the important point that science can sometimes feel nebulous and out of reach to the public. The way that most people digest and interface with scientific research is through news and media. And while this is a good start, the message of the scientific process, so how experiments are designed and carried out, the extensive collaboration between researchers, and the fact that people are constantly building upon each other's work is often lost in translation. And also at the root of it, we just need to better understand who's behind it all. Sometimes people forget that scientists are just human beings too, and that they're people that we can identify and relate to and learn from. So to address all of these issues, we really need creative ways to empower the public, help people understand exactly what scientists do and who they are, and why research is far from being clear cut. Let's keep listening. I wanted to probe a little bit more to all of you. Um, what are some of the things that we can learn from other countries, sort of along the vein of what you, both of you were saying earlier, but what can we learn from other countries to potentially move forward in our current landscape? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's, this is the first time I've spoken about the UK as some kind of utopia in years, because um, trust me, it's not my general feeling towards at the moment. But um, so there are some schemes. Has anyone heard of uh, soapbox science? So, yeah, so soapbox science is a, a British in, invention, a uh, pint of science, again, British. So we have them here, right, because they expanded to be global. And, you know, when the, the organisers of soapbox science uh, emailed me and was like, hey, because I did one of their first ones about five years ago in the northeast of England, they were like, should we do it in Toronto? I was like, oh, yes, yes, you should. And where should we do it? And I was like, Young and Dundas Square. And then they came and they visited and they looked at Young and Dundas Square. They were like, really? Yeah. And I was like, no, seriously, these people, they, I, I could tell you 10 female scientists who could handle that, no problem. And that's just the, the people I know having been here two months, you know? So um, 
I, I think it's good to have these schemes, right? Because it, it's good to learn from, from experiences of other places that have done them well. But sure, you do want uniquely you know, Canadian things, grassroots things as well, like your podcast, for example. But I think uh, Canada has a big challenge insofar, insofar that it's so damn big. And what you have is you have the super science cities. You've got Vancouver, Montreal, uh, Toronto, all the other places that I'm probably forgetting as a Toronto-centric person. But you know, you've got the really big, incredible science research departments, and then you've got all of the people living in you know places like Thunder Bay, which is twice the distance of the tip to the top of the UK. I mean, you can fit four UKs and one Ontario. So there is there are unique challenges here. Like I think um, Dan was saying early, earlier, like how do you get people out into the field? If I'm going to drive to Thunder Bay to talk to a school, I mean, it's an 18-hour drive or a $300 flight or something. So there are unique challenges, but I think also potential unique solutions, which people here who know the country and, and how it works much better than I do can hopefully come up with. Um, and yeah, and we need local science advocates as well, and they don't have to be scientists, right? The, the, the way to do this is not to parachute a scientist into every place you could possibly want, it's to have people who are passionate about a topic. You do not have to be a scientist to be passionate about science. And you can, you can inspire others to be passionate about science, even, you know, citizen science, as people were talking about earlier, is such a, such a big thing. And so, you know, what you need is a grassroots network, which covers, covers everywhere, I would say, but I, I don't exactly know how to do that right now, because the country's kind of big. So. <laughs> I think we have a couple of opportunities here. One is that we do, as, as we heard earlier, have a population that is very well educated, and there's a lot of really great ideas that come out of Canada. Uh, and the other thing that I think is a fantastic opportunity is that there are so many different ways of telling that story. Whether you're developing uh, e-learning modules or you're doing something through a mobile application or creating an algorithmic app to, tell us, to, to be able to help people through a challenge or to help um, be able to solve something that's within their, within their daily lives that's uh, based on disease burden or creating an augmented or virtual reality installation that helps to put somebody in an immersive environment where they're really getting a true understanding of what it might be uh, to experience either having that disease state or to see what's happening at a molecular level. We have a ton of opportunity here in Canada and I think we've got the team to do it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're based here in Toronto is that there is such a tremendous amount of talent. I think what we need to do is own that and I think we need to sort of generate our own voice a little bit more and have more companies within Canada that are willing to sort of take that um, step beyond uh, risk and be able to do some of those and take, take on some of those initiatives and um, I think we, we have a really bright future because of that. Yeah, so my main experience is with the United States. Um, so this could be a, seen as a bad thing. Uh, in the United States uh, there is more of an attitude that anyone can challenge anything and has as much right to an opinion as anyone else and uh, you know very skeptical of so-called elitists and it, it, that can be dangerous where people think that without necessarily understanding climate science they are entitled to an equally valid opinion um, but there is something to be learned from that I think I would love to see a bit more I don't think Canada lacks this, but it is the, the, if you can pick out something they can learn from, from America is, is a bit of that, that skepticism and that willingness to just engage, even if you're not an expert, uh, to, to make it a more democratized experience, to an extent. <laughs> uh, you know, informed and democratized, ideally. What do we think are sort of ways to be able to foster some of that, the things that you're saying, Ella? Oh, how do you foster that? I mean, I... 
I mean, I'm, we're, we're, this is the kind of thing we're trying to do with our, with our podcast is, so it's not, it really isn't, it's partly about the findings, but we're introducing people to scientists as, as human beings, um, which I, I, they're, you know, they're the heroes of the story. Sometimes they're not the heroes. Um, they're people that hopefully our listeners can just connect to as, as human beings and identify with. And I, we try to also make, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing that people always say in journalism is, is ex explain it to me like, like you're explaining it to your eight-year-old nephew. Um, we try to make the language accessible. We, we, don't, we, we try to present it not as an elitist thing, but as a common sense thing. I mean, science is not this magical, inaccessible thing. Yes, there are specific words that you need to learn for particular fields, but it's, it's basically, it's just common sense. You know, look at the world, test your ideas against the evidence, um, and we try to communicate that. I think, I hope, I hope it's working. I mean, we, I think that my favorite review was, from someone who said they don't normally like science, um, but they enjoyed the podcast, and I, th I think it's because we tell them stories about real people. Yeah, and on, on that note as well, this is so, uh, as I think Doina said earlier, not everyone has social media, but it is an incredible tool to reach out on some kind of level field to lots of people. And actually, I think a great example of this was when the March for Science last year was being debated as to whether it was exclusionary or inclusionary, inclusionary of various minorities, at least everybody got a voice because you could look at the Twitter hashtag and you could see people talking about it. Which, And it does the same for science. So, for example, I can look at, oh, good grief, just cancer, the hashtag, and there will be people talking about their new nature paper. There will be uh, people talking about how they learned about it at school or in their undergraduate degrees. And there'll be a lot of people saying cannabis cures cancer and look at this YouTube video and this happens. And so there's a big swirling pot of everything going on, but at least people are talking. The question is, how do we harness that to make the talks productive? And how do we stop any individual kind of part of this conversation taking over? You don't just want it to be scientists talking about their nature papers with growth factors and stats and things like that. You don't just want it being talk, people talking about YouTube videos saying cannabis cure cancer, but you, you want everybody to be able to talk to each other. And you know, so social media, I, I, I mean, I'm biased, but I think is a great tool for doing that. And it's also a great tool for um, you know, people in, in different discrete communities um, to communicate. And if just as, as one example, there's something called Get Me, uh, I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here, which is a scheme run in the UK by the Wellcome Trust, and it involves scientists in groups of five Skyping in essentially to schools. And uh, you talk a little bit about your subject, and the schools can ask you, the, the kids can ask you anything. Um, and then they, they vote which one of you has performed the best, been the best scientist, <laughs> and one of you gets kicked out each day of the week until somebody eventually becomes the you know, chief scientist or whatever, and I, I must say, I did eventually win that one, but only because the, the penultimate um, event, so they could ask us anything, right? Um, as long as it was respectful. And so there was a, a class of 14-year-old boys at a boys' school, and they decided they wanted the entire conversation not to be about cancer or molecular biology, but about their anatomy. And why does it do this? And I was like, so I'm furiously Googling my, uh, the analytical chemist who was also, and there was a professor of chemistry called Werner, just was like making these really 
fantastically dry jokes about things. I'm like, you can't say that. We have to, you know, so I'm like Googling all these pictures and I'm like, oh, good grief, what's going on? <laughs> but, but, you know, and, and you laugh, but this is, this is fantastic to give kids an opportunity, even though, you know, 13-year-old boys maybe aren't going to ask me about the intricacies of leukemia or tumors. Some of them did, but then they wanted to know, can penises get cancer too? And the answer is yes, right? Um, rare, thankfully, for the, the gentleman in the room. But, um, you know, it can happen. And that was a, a way to actually communicate to them. Um, and so these kind of schemes are really good, and they're really because I could talk to a school in Thunder Bay and one in Squamish and BC at the same time, and you know the kids can be able. So internet and social media is fantastic. We want to do. Uh, we want. We have like a, a company called Quantum Capture that could like literally capture you guys and like could create virtual humans, and it could be you, and um, the interaction of being in a room. Like that's what we want to like where you can interact. We do it like they do a lot of quantum capture. where you can virtual like organs. So being able to pick things up and see things, but it's in virtual, so you're in a virtual reality and you could augment with your phone or you know, you can see things and you're just like, what? And there's just nothing and you're like, what? You know, so that experience, uh, you know, I, I, explaining medication to my dad, you know, like he's 85 and I would love if I can have, like just know what's happening every day with him, right? Like that kind of, so I think the education, again, I always take it back to what I wanna create and what people are creating so we can interact with it and get information. But it'd be kind of cool for you to be in a room and be like, you could talk to like millions of people and just be you virtually. I think one of the, the, one of the key themes that we're seeing tonight is really to know your audience and know who you're actually trying to reach because if you can't create a message that resonates with that audience, you've missed it. It's gone over their head. And you're not going to generate content that's for a healthcare professional in the same way, using the same methods as you are for someone who's a patient or a group that's at risk that doesn't necessarily look in those traditional challenges, or sorry, those channels that we, that we would normally disseminate these kinds of content. So how do we reach that group? Well, find out what resonates with them. Create a story that is something that's meaningful them, for them. Um, one of the projects that we recently worked uh, on was for uh, women who were at risk of early, um, early uh, childbirth, and it's typically an at-risk group. And so it was developing something that would resonate with them, that they would really understand what was happening and be able to make informed decisions about treatments that are happening um, that they could potentially take that would allow their child to reach full term before birth. And why that was so important was we tried to tell the story of what happens between those last uh, six to eight weeks of, of growth in the womb in a way that would make them understand what was happening and have it resonate with them. And so we created a 360 degree immersive experience in VR that was inside the womb and it showed all the small changes. And then we put it in the hands of physicians that are dealing with these people that actually have that challenge so that they could see and it allowed them the ability to understand things in a way that resonated with them because we were hitting the right audience and we're hitting the right people and getting it into the hands of those people that actually could make it meaningful. And that's a very, very different approach than if we're creating a mechanism of action animation and we're looking at you know, researchers or scientists or healthcare professionals that already understand the signaling cascades and where um, inhibition of a specific protein happens. It's, it's really understanding your audience. And I think by doing that, you make science work for each of those individual audiences. It sounds like there are ways for just about everyone to get involved in communicating and disseminating science. As our panelists have suggested, this could be done by the government through public campaigns and curriculum, private organizations that enable new technologies for learning, and even students like us. So whose responsibility is it? Well, 
The best answer is that everyone has a role to play. Our guests suggest that it's important to have motivated, science-conscious people in just about every industry and organization. In media, knowing your audience and tailoring your content leads to better journalism and makes for a more informed reader. In the clinical setting, patients can be included in the conversation about how their tax dollars are being spent to further research. Also, new technologies like augmented reality and podcasting are already promising avenues to better engage people in science and can be used as great learning tools. It sounds like the potential for change and science advocacy can be found just about everywhere. Can I ask a, can I make a comment and you'll answer, you know, because I want to know the answer. What happens if the message, we know like climate change or we know that there's a lot of negative things that we need to fix? And then you have a huge population. And when I have family members who are like, climate change? And I'm like, dude, I work at a university. Like, you know what I mean? Like, read a book. Like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know what to do. Like, Thanksgiving is horrible. Like, oh my gosh, I gotta be there. Like, I, I moved here to I don't wanna do the fight. And that's happening here too. What? <laughs> I'm moving to BC. I've had enough. No, I'm yeah, joking. Yeah, yeah. I moved like, here to escape. You're this. sitting there going, well, <laughs> only what, a few years ago there was burning of books up in northern, northern Ontario with research over um, ecology. Like there were things happening and that's why I always bring advocacy and, and knowledge, but how do we respond? How have you responded to that uncle at Thanksgiving who, you know, that one? I just, I just need responses just so I know what, how to survive holidays. I, I get this constantly, right? So you think, you know, being cancer research line, especially focusing on, on kids' cancer would be a fairly like, you know, people would believe that I'm a good person. Uh, not universally, would you believe? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a decent person in some respects, and I'm sure I could improve in others, but like generally speaking, I, I believe in what I do, and I would like to think that people believe that I'm doing it for the right reasons. And wow, I, I've been called all manner of things, um, saying, you know, I'm a big pharma, shrill, no, nobody's ever going to uh, cure cancer, and, you know, we spend X number of billions of dollars, world, hundreds of billions of dollars worldwide on cancer, and nobody's found it yet, and it's my fault. And so that, I don't want to defer too much from your point, I want to let other people answer, but it brings in a very important point, which is uh, sometimes science isn't likable, and uh, cancer is a really, really kind of acute point of that. Like, um, I get asked all the time, why haven't we found the cure for cancer yet? And I say, well, I'm sitting here in front of you, and I had cancer 23 years ago. And sometimes they don't believe me. They're like, oh, that was different. And I'm like, no, no, no. We can successfully treat some cancers, and we can't others. And there are 200 different types of cancer. And I always say calling them this one thing is like calling Parkinson's, schizophrenia, depression, one thing, just because they're all to do with the brain. But, and then if people do want to engage with that, they're like, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah, you know, the drugs that we're going to use to treat different types of cancers and the drugs we use to treat different types of cancers successfully are different. They're very, very different. There is unlikely to be one cancer treat, you know, cure that works specifically for them. But people don't like things. And sometimes if they don't like it, they are not, they're going to go for the easy option. You know, the cannabis cures cancer thing. I, I have had so many questions about that. And if it's respectful, I always engage. And sometimes I have a finite amount of energy and I just ignore because I'm sick of people telling me that they're going to grow their own cancer cure because it's damaging, right? And you know, we, the people spoke, spoke in the first uh, panel about, you know, you should engage and things like that. Sure, but at one point I, you know, got about 15 to 20 questions a day about lemons and bleach and people aren't always going to like what you have to say and climate change I think is another very, very good point. Um, and sometimes they're going to reject it because they don't like it. 
and you can do anything to make it look we've made great progress in this type of cancer and this treatment you know and these treatments have meant that I can now survive and 95% of kids like me now survive in developed countries it's remarkable but sometimes they just don't like it it's not cannabis okay and you know it's a whole different kettle of fish that but I just want to say so in terms of dealing with difficult people I don't think any part of science is immune and I like what you said where you talked about engaging those people because everyone is entitled to having their own opinion but I think what's really important for that is that if you are able to at least consistently supply an opinion that is rooted in something that is more accurate then hopefully you know you're not always going to reach everybody there are people that are going to plug their ears and say I'm not interested in hearing this but if you're consistent about the way that you approach those scenarios and we are engaging them as opposed to sort of dismissing them at least there's an opportunity for those people that are on the fence or those people that might not necessarily uh, you know uh, hold those opinions in, in really hold them very hard you can resonate and maybe you open a dialogue and maybe that helps to bring somebody over the fold who decides now that this makes makes sense and perhaps you know it's it becomes more empowering to that population um, it is challenging there are people that come from varying different backgrounds and they're going to have very specific opinions about certain topics um, but I think as long as you straight stay true to who you are and stay true to the story that you know and you believe um, that ultimately, um, you know, there's people out there that you will ultimately re reach because of that. So I've had many failed conversations, so I don't say this is a successful <laughs> converter of other people's views, but um, I think yeah, engaging, first of all, and engaging respectfully, you know, as soon as people feel like you're, you're setting up your, yourself, you're, you're judging them, you're, you're in opposition to them, they completely shut down and they're not listening. So I, there's a lot of research out there on persuasion, but um, and they're still working it out. But some of it is about asking people questions, letting them come to their own conclusions, but you know, in a sort of gentle, guided, friendly, open fashion. Um, I think also uh, creating more trust in, scient in, in scientists as people. If they know people, they're not these like ivory tower, liberal elite, you know, frauds that I, yeah. I think I saw one good example where, and I think this is where voices was really important bringing out as many voices, and I think the last panel and everyone in the room is about bringing out voices, is having a Republican farmer in the Midwest saying, I believe in climate change because it's affecting my farm. Like this is a different voice than we expect the person with the protest sign, and they're the ones protesting too. Well, and, and yeah, to uncouple, uncouple some of these ideas from people's identities, you know, if you think that if, if I'm a Republican, then I have a certain position on climate change, and to, yeah, to show people that those two don't have to go, you can still be a Republican. But I saw that, I, I heard that voice on PBS though. Right. Right? Yeah. So it was public broadcasting. <laughs> All right, well, I think we've had a wonderful discussion so far. And I think that's it for panel two. Thank you, everyone. At the end of the day, science is relevant to everyone and science communication isn't just for scientists. With conversations like these, it's our hope that motivated individuals can create meaningful content that allows people to ask more questions and generate more creative ideas. Yeah, and with a little bit of teamwork and passion from multiple domains, we can bring science into the forefront of public consciousness. This can help promote critical thinking about complex issues and help people, regardless of location and background, shape some of their own opinions in ways that are more rooted in scientific truth. Yeah, when was the last time your opinion changed on a scientific fact? I think there are many instances right now, especially in the changing landscape that we live in, where there are just lots of mixed messages that are being thrown around all the time. And it's difficult for the public to distill that information and really figure out 
what some of the scientific truth behind a lot of these mixed messages are. Yeah, and I guess one of the drawbacks of having so many technologies early on available to people to get their information from is that maybe there isn't a consistent source of information. And so people might hear one thing from one domain and then they might go to another platform and hear something completely different. And I think we also have to make sure that for those communities that maybe are a little bit more insular or isolated, that everyone kind of has access to the same kind of sources, but also you want to make sure that where they're getting their information from is also scientifically valid. I think this touches upon some of the things that were discussed in the first panel, where sometimes people end up resorting to information that's being given out by celebrities because they're seen as more approachable and they use language that's digestible to the general public. And that's why it ends up being more accessible and people trust them. And although scientists who are doing a lot of evidence-based research where there probably is a lot of trust or should be, where there is a foundation of where the information is coming from, often don't have the means to communicate that and to speak in a language that is understandable to everyone. And that's where a lot of the everyday conflicts now arise because we hear from different celebrities or different popular media people that our kids shouldn't get vaccinated or that different types of remedies are extremely beneficial to our health, etc. And yeah, not to knock on any of these things necessarily, but it really is important at the end of the day to figure out where your information is coming from and why you believe in the things that you believe in. So all in all, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. Has it changed your perspective? Let us know what you thought. In the meantime, we're going to take a little break to regroup, but we'll be back with more topics and some new voices next month with the debut of Season 3. I can't believe we're already going into Season 3. I know. So until Season 3... Keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. I have family members who are like, climate change? And I'm like, dude, I work at a university.